ban on some live streaming just before a conversation on open government and public records. This is the week of February 4th. Welcome to Grand Divisions. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. To kick off this week, we're going to have a discussion about open government, public records, and state lawmakers. Um, This week, there's going to be a uh, gathering of the Tennessee Press Association. The organization is expecting to hear from Governor Bill Lee, Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally, and House Speaker Glenn Cassida on a multitude of issues, including open government and public records. But before that gets started and before that happens... Uh, Natalie and I have to kind of get to a story that we broke this week uh, that w- it was kind of weird, actually. Uh, how did how did it come about? Yeah, so we had uh, started hearing some rumblings. I don't know, was it Tuesday, the first day of committee yeah. meetings, um, from people who had heard in different committee meetings that the the chairman were announcing members of the public nor members on the committee could use their phones to live stream. Uh, this year, among the among the rules that you know the chairman were ado- adopting for their particular committees and subcommittees, uh, no Facebook Live, Instagram Live, Periscope, or anything like that. Or as one lawmaker, I don't remember who put it, no FaceTiming. No FaceTiming either. <laughs> don't even think about it. Uh, so the so the context here is that. Um, there are at least a couple legislators, both Democrats that we know, uh, Antonio Parkinson and GA Hardaway, both from both representatives from Memphis, um, who have used their phones to, to live stream to their constituents or others, um, on their Facebook page, you know, maybe meetings that are various proceedings that they think would be of interest. Um, and also I don't think it's, it's outside the realm of possibility that activists and others who are coming to these meetings have also used uh, live stream as well to sort of uh, get the word back to others who care about a particular cause. I'm pretty sure I saw at a, a hearing for the Department of Correction back in December um, some people who were sitting in the audience doing that, not disrupting, but just holding their phones. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we, we first hear about this, then Natalie and I start paying attention because at that point on Tuesday, it was kind of a sleepy day in the legislature. They, they are still going through their organizational stuff, uh, essentially just going around committees, introducing each other. Uh, meanwhile, we're watching the uh, all important and very uh, engrossing uh, governor's budget hearings. Truly riveting. <laughs> so we went back, watched the videos of some of these uh, committee me- meetings in the House, and essentially they were saying, okay, there's going to be no video taking in these these meetings. That doesn't mean that they're not going to have live streaming in general. The state does provide a live stream and a video record of all of the committee hearings. But these what these chairmen were saying in some instances was that the public uh, was not allowed to shoot video as well as committee members. The more we found out, though, it was kind of a mixed message, right? So you heard some committees saying, we're just going to ban committee members from, from live streaming. Uh, others were saying, no, 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 this applies to both the public and uh, to committee members. At that point, we had kind of thought, well, what does that mean? Who is, who's in the public? Because I thought we were part of the public. 
Uh, we are. You asked Doug Kuffner, uh, the spokesman for the House Republican uh, Caucus at one point, and what was his response? Well, I was asking him, he, he was specifically talking about uh, a committee being chaired by Ron Travis, which I think would have been insurance, um, and said he had talked to Ron, and, and Ron basically told him, Doug said, that uh, members of the media, like TV stations, et cetera, if they wanted to you know, run live video from the meeting, that they would just have to get prior approval. Um it's a little uncertain what that would mean for members of the media like us who don't have TV cameras if we would have to get permission. So it started, you know, we started having all these questions about this is not um, a very clear policy. It certainly doesn't seem like it's going to be consistently enforced. And how do you enforce it? So at that point, I decide we've got to talk to uh, the, the spokesman for House Speaker Glenn Cassida. That's Cade Cothran. And, and Cade essentially told me, uh, no, this isn't going to affect the media. Uh, you will still be able to record because that's part of your job. But he essentially said, OK, um, if you are disruptive in these committee hearings, uh, you will and, and, and you're live streaming, you will be able to get kicked out. Uh, the interesting and the curious part about this is their rules currently allowed that. You know, if you were uh, making a ruckus and, and disruptive, you could have just the, the chairman of the committee could have just easily said, OK, that's part of the decorum, uh, you know, uh, element and, and the sergeant at arms, please escort them out. So it's kind of a weird move that they would decide to do this. Um, Cassida, of course, said that it didn't come from his office. Um, but you know, he did encourage people that he backed them if they were deciding this was a new rule. Um, but I thought part of the confusing part was the fact that you didn't have a list and know some committees were saying, okay, just committee members. Others were saying, you got to ask us for video in advance. Uh, others were saying, no, it's just, so it was just way too confusing yeah. in my mind. Yeah. And there's, there's 42 committees and subcommittees. So how members of the public are supposed to keep up with these rules? I don't know. All that being said, uh, we came out with the story and there was some, you know, reaction on Twitter, among other folks. Uh, Kate eventually sent out a clarifying statement. Um, but, you know, it certainly is something that we are going to keep an eye on if people are going to, uh, you know, try and live stream. This apparently even affects the House chamber. So if you're up in the House and you decide to live stream right now, we were told that there is a ban on that. And and uh, GA Hardaway, he he basically stood up on Thursday and and asked, "Where in the rules is this?" Um, he was told, "You know, committee chairs can adopt their own rules. Uh, this ne isn't necessarily in the new rules that that we adopted." But he he told uh, Cassida that he he wanted to see it in writing uh, by the time they returned the start of this week. And then he told me that if he didn't see it in writing he would continue to live stream, that he doesn't believe this is a real rule. So we'll see how this plays out. Will he do it? Will he get escorted out one day? I don't know. That seems unlikely. This week in Nashville, the Tennessee Press Association is having its winter convention, and we thought there would be no better time to bring in a couple people who are quite familiar with what's going on in the state with public records, laws, access, transparency, all of that. We have with us today Deborah Fisher. She's the executive director of the Tennessee Coalition for Open Government and Representative Jason Zachary. He is the chairman of the legislature's ad hoc committee on open records. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us on. Thanks. So I, I, I kind of wanted to start uh, by going backwards and, and looking uh, two years ago. I remember being at the Tennessee Press Association and one of the uh, members in the audience essentially asked the Speaker of the House and the Senate. Uh, there is just a huge amount of exemptions to the state's Open Records Act. Um, so at that meeting, I remember uh, Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally and 
uh, Speaker Beth Harwell, uh, now former Speaker Beth Harwell, uh, saying that they'd like to review that. Now, fast forward a little bit, uh, and let's go to where we're at today. I know, Representative Zachary, you you kind of released a, a long list of recommendations in December mm-hmm. regarding these exemptions. Tell us kind of the summary of what you found. Sure. Well, it, it, coming into this, I was asked to serve as the chairman. I really did not know much about exemptions, and I thought being Tennessee, we were fairly transparent, and, and we are to a certain extent, but um, I think for most of us, we realize that transparent government is good government. The people who we represent need to know exactly what's going on with their government. And as we began to walk through this process, being only in my third term, I realized that there were actually right at 600 exemptions that are on the books today. Um, some some are fine, but there are many of those exemptions that limit uh, the ability of the press to be able to report um, about things related to government within Tennessee that people want to know. Can you give an example? One one exemption. Um, one exemption. Uh, well, <laughs> the one that people really like to talk about is the exemption. Re- the exemptions related to economic development. Um, and so there are um, there are things related to economic development that. Um, that are kept confidential and some some very warranted, uh, but there are some things uh, we believe could probably be have some light shed on those, and that's probably the one that uh, some things within the University of Tennessee. Those are things that get the most attention. And so, as we began to walk through this process, again, me being somewhat naive to it, and as we began to walk through, I realized how many exemptions that we had on the books. Um, and how it limited the press's access to information. And so as we began to walk through this, it's such a heavy lift because there are so many exemptions. Back in, and Deborah, you may know this better than me, but back in the 80s, there were something like 89 exemptions on the books, and now we're almost at 600. (laughs) And so it's something that has actually gained steam and gained traction versus us kind of pulling back on that. And so the first thing that we had to look at as a committee is, all right, how do we handle this moving forward? That's actually the easy part. How do we address exemptions moving forward? And so um, we actually have a meeting in the next couple of weeks with uh, Lieutenant Governor McNally, Speaker Cassida, and we're going to sit down with them, uh, my co-chairman on the Senate side, Senator Gardenhire. We're going to sit down and take all the recommendations for the committee and look at what we can do to formalize that into legislation. So one, we deal with the exempt, how do we handle exemptions moving forward? Uh, whether we send those to government ops, we put sun, uh, we put a sunset on it. Uh, we just shine more light specific to the exemption because me as a legislator, when I sit and I'm, I'm, I'm evaluating the merits of the bill and then I hear somebody talk about exemption and they give a really good case for it. You really, I truly don't think much about it. All right, that sounds good. We need to protect that. And then we move it out. Well, moving forward, we're going to take those exemptions and put those over to the government ops committee is what the plan is, what I believe the plan is now. And we're going to shed some light on those and vet those through the process so the people can see, the press can understand. And that way, if there's something wrong with the exemption, we can fix it there. So that's kind of the easier part of this. Handle How do we handle exemptions moving forward? The, the biggest challenge is what to do about addressing the almost 600 exemptions that are on the books. And so that's a that's a much bigger conversation. Some states have taken a decade to walk through those. So that is an extensive overhaul and not something that we as a summer committee uh, or as an ad hoc committee, that's not something, a task we could take on. And so there's conversations with um, uh, Chairman Daniel, who's chairman of the Government Ops Committee, about how Government Ops takes control of all those exemptions and begins to vet 
and walk through those exemptions, uh, whether we put sunsets on all of them and they have to be justified to be able to carry them forward, whatever it may be, we can't just let these sit. There has to be action behind our work as a committee and what are we going to do about those 593. And so that we've got options on the table, but I think that the key the key follow-up and action item for our committee uh, coming out of this ad hoc committee is um, how we address the exemptions moving forward. So we we slow down the the addition of, of uh, these exemptions that we keep putting on the books. So I think it's worth noting that when the state created its Open Records Act in the 50s, there were only, what, two exemptions. Uh, we're at 500-some-odd now. Deb, this question is for you. Do you think it has – would you say it has been too easy for uh, Tennessee to create these exemptions year by year? Um, I, I think that sometimes you'll hear about some of the high-profile exemptions, and they will get vetted. But um, as Representative Zachary mentioned, the some exemptions get passed in, say, a subject-specific committee, and really the public doesn't have a chance to know about them. So the change in process um, is really important because anything that deals with closing records can go before another committee and hopefully can uh, plot, that committee can apply some criteria against them. So the public has a chance to say, hey, um, here is who that exemption impacts and, you know, and here's why it should be open or, or maybe it's an exemption that's fine. You know, the, the, there are about 600 uh, current exemptions and there has been some talk about, well, are all those exemptions bad? And no, not all of them are because there are clearly some things that should be private, some personal information, obviously, um, student records, that kind of thing. But when we look, when I looked at all of the exemptions uh, and providing information uh, to the committee, um, our concern is really about those exemptions that are broad, so broadly written that the public purpose for the exemption is uh, not necessarily, that they're easily abused, that there might have been a public purpose, but it's so vague you can kind of drive a truck through it. And, and there are some exemptions that are written in such a way that um, they, there's disagreement over what they mean. So we want for the public purpose to be clear and for them not to be so broad that it ends up exempting things that really weren't intended by lawmakers when they passed it. So at one point, Representative Zachary, you were talking about uh, sunsets and, and adding that on. How hard do you think it would be to just say, let's let's look at all the exemptions and add one blanket sunset? You know, I, is that an insane request? Is that something that's even possible? Joel, I would never call you insane. <laughs> but, but And that's a good point. It's a good question because part of the challenge is, and so as we started to walk through this, I believe we met five, six, four, four five times. times, four or five times. And after the second meeting, I had contacted the comptroller's office and I asked them to begin to, to go through, and I did not realize how extensive this would be, to go through and evaluate every exemption because there are there are many of these exemptions that are tied to a federal statute or federal dollars. And so I didn't know that coming into this process. And so there would be no way to put a blanket sunset mm -hmm. on them because we have so many that are tied to either a federal statute or federal dollars. The challenge is, and speaking with the comptroller's office, is that it is such an extensive walk to go through all those exemptions and determine how many are tied to a, a federal um, a federal statute or dollars that it's going to take some time to walk through those. Mm -hmm. And so we're not able to, to just slap a blanket sunset on it because of the danger of federal funding or being in violation of federal law. Um, so that's one of the challenges. And we don't know, it, it, truly talking to the comptroller's office, we don't know if that's 50. We don't know if it's 300. And so we have to determine that. So that way we can literally, in our bucket of 593, we can take the 160 exemptions that might be mandated federally – 
we slide those over to the side, then that decreases the number, and then we can attack those. And so it's it, that that will be the challenge, and that's why was it Texas that spent ten years walking through? Was that um, Texas? Florida? It was another state. Um, I, I think it was might have been Texas. Okay. I'm not sure. It, but they, but they took a full decade walking through, and that's why it's such an, ex- an yeah. extensive overall to go through those exemptions. So we're going to take our time because we don't want to do something where we we cut an exemption or drop an exemption, all of a sudden we have to come back for a special session because it costs us $70 million from the feds. So Tennessee, are we sort of in the second year of this process, would you say? No, this would really be the first, first year. year. Yeah, okay. this is the first year. So you, speaker, go, go oh, ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I, I know that the, the study was ordered, you know, by uh, Beth Harwell and mm-hmm. Randy McNally with the yep. Comptroller's Office. And then are you sort of counting once they have the report at the beginning of of what Tennessee is going to do. To well, I would say I would process. say this is the first year. So the committee meeting and beginning to gather information, public hearings here. How, how long do you think it's going to go on? They, it, it will be years. There's no doubt. I'm not going to put it. <laughs> could a, be a decade. It could be a decade. Okay. It very well could be a decade. And I think because that was something that was talked about over and over again, that was kind of looked at the model because of walking through it and really have, you have to take your time. And part of our challenge is right now being in full-time session from January to April, there's not going to be much work done on that. And that all that work will be done when session ends. When because gov- the, the good thing about government ops, they meet year round. They're the only committee that meets year round. So their their role is to dive into the intricacies of government, the various the bureaucracy of who we, of what we have here in Tennessee. And uh, since they meet year round, they have the ability and the margin to do that when other committees don't. So lots of long term planning. What about this session? You know, while you're waiting to figure out what's going to happen with exemptions, all the existing public records laws, uh, there there are some bills that are already being introduced this session uh, to deal with public access, things like that. One of them is about access to police body camera footage, Mm -hmm. which we've seen uh, play out in other states, you know, fights over should it be open to the public? Should they be able to request it? Should anyone be able to see it? Uh, and how much money are police departments going to have sure. to spend on storing it and 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 going through it? Um, is there a risk that the public could see sensitive information, you know, that victims wouldn't want seen? Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on currently in the legislature with this topic? Um, I, uh, well, a couple of years ago, uh, lawmakers did pass a bill that dealt with confidentiality of some um, body camera footage. And there was quite a bit of discussion um, over that at the time. And there's actually a sunset on that. Um, it gets repealed, I think, in maybe it's now three years from now. So I'm not, I'm not familiar with the details of the bill that you're talking about. I did see that it was filed. But I will say that lawmakers did come up with something a couple of years ago. We um, participated in giving some input into that and felt pretty good where it ended. Uh, what it did at the time was exempted uh, footage inside schools and hospitals and in some cases inside homes when there was not a crime being investigated, which we thought was a pretty good compromise. And we also were happy with the fact that there was a um, sunset on it so that, or a repeal on it actually after a certain number of years, so that as things sort of worked as we got more familiar with how this worked, um, lawmakers could come back on it and talk about it again. There's a there's another bill that uh, I thought was uh, of interest already this session. It's it would make 911 calls, uh, recordings, and transmissions confidential. Have you guys you know thought about this? Have you heard any initial conversations? Uh, is that a good idea in your mind? And and from my perspective, I haven't seen it. 
And so I, that wouldn't come through. I'm on insurance and banking sure. and finance, so it wouldn't it wouldn't come through my. But committee. now that you're an open government now expert, expert. <laughs> now that I'm an expert, without a doubt, I'm sure I'll get all these questions. But I, but I, I think for this session, now, like kind of back to your question. So this session, in terms of exemptions, we've created an awareness, which I don't think. Again, my first couple of terms, I would never even thought about this. It was never even a thought. Well, now we have created an awareness. It's an initiative uh, from the speaker and lieutenant governor. So we've got this initiative and this awareness that we've created. So I think it'll put, a, it will, it'll put a little more spotlight on it. Um, but in terms of how we fix it and what's being done this session, um, Senator Gardenhire, our Senator Gardenhire and I are carrying legislation and that's what we're meeting with the speaker and lieutenant governor about to make sure we have the language as it should be. And so that's, we're going to actually legislative and put a fix to this, this session. Is that what this, uh, I, I think I saw a bill under your name that looked like a caption bill. It's a caption bill. bill. Okay. Yeah, yeah okay. that's exactly what it is. And so we got filing deadlines this week. We have to have bills in. That caption bill will hold the place, and then we'll put language within the next couple of weeks. Yep, that's exactly what it is. So, Deb, what other legislation are you kind of hearing that or expecting this year related to public records and, and open government? Right. And we did see the 911 bill filed, so we're concerned about that and trying to get some information about it. Um, obviously, we want 911, you know, and all the agencies associated that to still be accountable. And so transparency is an important piece of that. Um, but other things that we are actually supporting, um, we are supportive of some efforts to uh, increase transparency related to tax credits that are given for economic development. Um, we've um, provided some research um, that shows that um, not every state uses tax credits for economic development, but of the ones that do, m the majority allow that to be open. In Tennessee, um, the amounts that individual companies are awarded in tax credit for job creation or investment is considered confidential. Um, so we, we're we supportive of legislation that would make that public, like most other states, um, who the company is and um, what they were awarded. It would not be um, while there were negotiations going on. This is all after that. So um, we don't think that there would be any negative impact yeah. on. And we did ask uh, Governor Lee about that just last week after one of the budget hearings. Right. Um, and he he said, yeah, he said, I think that this should be available uh, to the public, this information at some point, not obviously not when negotiations are happening, if it's going to prevent the state from, you know, securing a deal. But it does seem like he's open to that. Mm -hmm. uh, have you all gotten any kind of indications from the Lee administration on any other areas they'd like to increase access or transparency? Well, I've in, in talking to the governor, and it's something we talked about actually during the campaign, is that in his 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 mantra has been transparency. More transparency is a good thing. And then you look at what we've done at the university. I say we, what <laughs> being a Knoxville guy, what the University of Tennessee has done under Randy Boyd, one of the first institutions, if not the first institution in the country, that has created a transparency website. He now has a board that he has put together. Um, John North at WBR is on that board to be able to help them in their transparency and communication because Randy, he actually even said it this week in an interview um, that the more communication they can have, not only with legislators, but within the community, to let the community know what the University of Tennessee is doing is the better. The better. So if you look at from the governor being being um, focused on transparency, the legislature is now focused on transparency all the way down to the University of Tennessee. 
It really gives the opportunity for you guys to do your job, but it also just for the everyday citizen who maybe doesn't want to have to go dig for it and find the information, it does make it easier for him to follow and keep up with what's going on because now the information is easier to access and more accessible accessible without you having to do a two-hour deep dive research to be able to find some of the things that, that most people, many people want to know, most people should know. Uh, one of the Lee's first executive orders was... Uh, for all the departments have to undergo public records training, which I understand Haslam did as well. What do you think about that? Is that enough? Do you, Deb, do you think uh, there should be more than just a training on the uh, law? Well, well, training is certainly uh, needed. It's it's important, not just at state agencies, but actually quite, you know, at the local level. And, you know, what we have been promoting is a more op- a, a better culture in terms of open records access. So unfortunately, we did we had an audit um, last year that showed some of the barriers that people have that governments have put up to get access to public records. For example, some of them won't let you take a picture of a public record when you're yes, in there inspecting it. Right. And so that's a very efficient a thing pain. to do. And um, it, people use their phones just to take notes. So um, so, you know, so that kind of thing really goes to the culture of the government entity and making it easier, not um, making people jump through so many hoops, um, getting the information to um, people faster when it's readily available. We see a lot of delays over records. I'm not necessarily saying state agencies, but over records that on the outside look like they would be readily available. Minutes to meetings, believe it or not, are sometimes delayed for people to get. And so um, I think there's a whole culture improvement that needs to occur um, uh, in, in Tennessee around that. There are some models out there of government entities who do who are very uh, citizen-friendly. Others, you know, could use some improvement. I don't know if either one of you want to answer this question, but um, while we started that, I'm going to let you answer <laughs> this question. <laughs> <laughs> while, uh, while Governor Lee was campaigning, um, he often talked about you know transparency, but yet we continually ask for his tax returns or a summary of them. Uh, he declined to do so. Uh, <laughs> Deb's as we're, as we're pointing fingers. Pointing Deb, Deb's Thanks finger. for having us on, guys. We'll <laughs> um, I mean, is that is that an issue in your mind that um, the, the the head of the the state again talks about transparency, but isn't willing to even just share a summary that has previously uh, been shared by others? Uh, well, I know for me personally, like I literally just. Thursday, I think it was Thursday before I left, I did my statement of interest. And so it's very, very broad. Um, And I'm sure, I don't know, but I'm sure the government has to do, the governor has to do some sort of statement of interest. Um, And owning a family business and having other family members involved, I can understand the sensitivity of that. Same thing with the governor Haslam. Um, And so that does not, it doesn't bother me um, because he's doing it protection for a protection for a private company where multiple family members are involved. Um, and so, no, that that honestly, that doesn't bother me. Republican, Democrat, it doesn't bother me at all. Anything else? You want to say anything? Deb? Oh no, I mean, well, that's a, obviously a proactive disclosure. That's not a government record, right. which is what we focus on. Um, so that's more of a proactive disclosure that has to do with ethics. And in some situations, it may be you know more important than others. But I do think it's really the the question that you're getting to and things like that are the conflicts of interest that might occur. And um, so, I mean, I would suggest robust um, disclosure of conflicts of interest is probably for any for any law, you know, lawmaker or executive branch employee. 
Well, that is all the time we have. We appreciate you both coming on, sharing your perspective and your expertise. Um, and, and we look forward to see what the legislature and or Governor Bill Lee does uh, this year with public records and access to those. Thank you. Thank you for having us on. Thanks. This week on the podcast, we have the Tennessean's religion reporter, Holly Meyer. Holly, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So I want you to talk about a story you had uh, that came out in Sunday's print edition this past week. It was online a couple days before about what the legislature is doing to basically deal with the problem of felony child sex abuse victims uh, not being able to find justice because of the statute of limitations. So talk just a little bit about this, this ongoing fight to remove statutes of limitations in Tennessee and how this happened. There's an effort underway in the state to eliminate the statute of limitations on child felony sex abuse crimes. Uh, There are individuals and groups of people across the state working on this issue. They want to be able to help future victims seek justice. The big concern is that not only the nature of the crime, which many see as grievous, but that uh, most victims, if at all, uh, don't come forward until much later in life. And so they want to make sure that there's a mechanism in place uh, that they can still try and pursue criminal action against their perpetrators. And it seems like the effort underway now is sort of the culmination of uh, various events happening to different people in the state, all sort of around the same time realizing it's time to 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 do something to make this better for for the next victims or, you know, victims who are still um not able to seek justice. So I know in one case, uh, it was it was what was happening right now in the Catholic Church that prompted some people in East Tennessee to do something. Uh, in Murfreesboro, there was a man who was a victim himself of abuse as a child who was unable to find justice as an adult. So can you tell us a little bit about these people's stories um, and how that has led to where we are now with multiple lawmakers jumping on board with this? Right. As the religion reporter, my focus was looking at the recent responses uh, to the diocese and the state to the recent wave of the clergy sex abuse crisis, which uh, surfaced again this summer after a damning report out of Pennsylvania finding widespread abuse in their six of their dioceses. So that prompted a meeting at a church in East Tennessee in Oak Ridge. Uh, the regular folks in the pews were upset. They were like, what can we do? And it just so happened that this was Lieutenant Randy McNally's, uh, Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally's church. It's quite a coincidence. <laughs> and I mean, if anyone can do something, it's probably the Lieutenant Governor of the state. Right. He's certainly in a powerful position to make things happen. So this group who are not officially affiliated with the church uh, started meeting and started realizing that they wanted to try and not help victims just within the church, but outside, that this was a systemic issue. And so they started trying to figure out and look at what the problem was, what they could do, and tapping uh, the lieutenant governor for uh, guidance on how to make that happen. And so they came up with a wish list of legislative priorities, including eliminating the statute of limitations for felony child sex abuse, but also opening up a civil window for cases that have expired. Um, 
we're still waiting to see if legislation comes out of those groups' wish lists. However, at the same or nearly the same time, a couple months before that, uh, a man in Murfreesboro, Scott Walker, who's the president of a radio station in Murfreesboro, um, reached out to his lawmakers and uh, was able to testify before uh, a couple panels at the state capitol uh, sharing his story of abuse. He uh, went to the authorities with his story um, a couple decades after the abuse had happened, and they, the authorities told him it was too late, that they could no longer prosecute. So he wanted to, he couldn't help himself, but he wanted to help others. So he reached out to, um, one of them was Representative Mike Sparks, who introduced legislation um, that eventually got passed that sent this issue to the Tennessee Advisory Commission on Intergovernmental Relations, TASSER, to study it. Uh, that study uh, came out in, or the results of that study came out in December with a list of recommendations. And uh, Representative Mike Sparks, uh, he introduced a bill this session uh, that tackled one of those recommendations, which is to eliminate the statute of limitations for Class A and Class B felonies. So how likely are these measures to actually gain traction this year to maybe even become law? Have you heard about you know, what the support is like in the General Assembly for this? I have not. Um, I would say that it, as we talked earlier, it doesn't hurt that Lieutenant Governor uh, Randy McNally has uh, been working with uh, the group, uh, and he has said he would support such legislation. In a story that I published in December, it details that. Uh, so we'll just have to wait and see what becomes of the uh, slate of bills that end up addressing some various aspects of, of these issues. Great. Uh, great work on the story, Holly. Thanks for covering that portion of uh, the legislature right now. And we appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. And finally, the usual notebook dump. A lot of news this week, so we're not going to be able to cover it all. Uh, but first, uh, the Department of Education and their uh, governor's hearing, uh, their, their budget hearing with the governor's office uh, said that they would like a, additional funding, of course, like every other agency. But they specifically said they would like to enhance teacher pay. Uh, and at some point this week, we anticipate Governor Bill Lee uh, coming out with an announcement related to his effort uh, regarding technical and vocational schools. Last week, Governor Lee issued his fifth executive order. This one was a 90-day regulatory freeze, similar to an executive order that Haslam had put out, uh, putting a 45-day freeze on new regulations being filed by state departments with the Secretary of State. Um, he says that during this time, his administration is basically going to reevaluate how they will consider new regulations moving forward. Representative Jeremy Faison was involved in a car accident on February 1st. Uh, he wasn't wearing a seatbelt at the time, and his car or his vehicle, his truck, uh, went into the path of an 18-wheeler. Uh, he eventually had a couple of broken ribs and a gash on his head that he shared a photo of on Facebook. Uh, several lawmakers offered their, their prayers and support after the wreck. During Bill Lee's budget hearings this past week, we learned that the opioid crisis in Tennessee has contributed to a 10% increase over just the last two years in the number of foster children uh, in Tennessee. And finally, Governor Bill Lee is going to be going to the State of the Union. He's going to hear President Donald Trump speak there. He is the guest of Representative Chuck Fleischman from East Tennessee, uh, Representative Fleischman invited Lee to go with him to the event where he gets an extra ticket. 
That's all for Grand Divisions this week. As usual, you can check us out every Tuesday on iTunes. Please continue to rate us. Uh, that really helps. So you can find us on Twitter at Grand Divisions 3. Uh, you can also send us any questions, ideas, thoughts you may have either on Twitter uh, or uh, via email. Uh, thanks again for listening. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. 